live from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful, sunny California. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show. I'm Rob Starr, along with Chris Davies. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing very well, Rob. Thanks for asking. Nice of you to say. It's a beautiful day. And, awesome here. And I know you were busy. I know I was busy. And now we're here doing the radio show. Absolutely. 10 pounds of oranges and only a two-pound bag today. That, that's right. Hey, just to remind our audience, you know, we're going to be doing this contest coming up, and the only thing that's holding it up at the moment is getting a special email address where everybody can call in. And what that is, we're going to give away free grass. But we we got to clarify this. It's grass seed and grass seed for turf. Just to make sure that's clear for everybody to understand. And what that is is we're going to give out a, uh, as soon as we get our new email address, we're going to give give that out to everybody. And we're going to give them a chance to weigh in on whether by the end of California's Governor Brown's term Term, in office, if we're going to have an approval for the twin tunnels to pump water down to Southern California. Right, right. And uh, so they can can go in and say yes or no, and then uh, we'll pick the winners from that, and everybody can win some neat prizes from that. And we'll probably throw in some gift cards, too. Yeah, yeah. So an announcement and some contest rules will be forthcoming. Yes, absolutely. I have to wait for legal. That's right. It's always a, you know, we won't do that thing at the end like on the car things. And then, I don't know about you. Get a speed talker to do the. uh, I I don't know about you, but my eyes aren't as good as they used to be when I was like 20. (laughs) But did you ever see those those terms and conditions that they throw up? To me, they're fuzzy. And they're so freaking little. (laughs) You can't read what it says. So. Yes, the person has to read it in four-point text and oh, font. God, it's amazing. It's amazing to that. Hey, we got a great show today. We have uh, a couple people that we know. One uh, used to work with us, mm-hmm. uh, a gentleman named Paul McFadden, and he's going to be on first. And then we have somebody who has 37, a colleague. I'll say he's a colleague. Hey, you can say uh, that. Yeah. Um, we're not in his league, though. Uh, he's been in the business for 37 years, and he's a, uh, a famous news weathercaster for uh, NBC News Television yep. on Channel 4 in L.A., Mr. Fritz Coleman. So he's going to be uh, on after that. And uh, I, I was, that was a humbling thing. He was just an awfully nice guy. You very know? down to earth, very yeah. uh, yep, very graceful, and uh, and uh, those of you who listen to the interview will will uh, you'll hear that come through. Yeah, someday we'll get to be like him. One day. One day. We may be too old by that <laughs> by that time. Well, anyway, we'd like to uh, bring on uh, our first guest, and, and, and I know Paul's on the line. Is Inge on the line with you? Yes, we are. We are here together. Oh, okay. In, uh, beautiful Cardiff by the Sea, uh, hosting uh, hosting this show from. Um, We'll call it the uh, radio station South. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> with the engineer, when I asked the engineer who's on my, he says, he says, oh, I don't know. I go, is it a guy or a girl? And he says, oh, it's a guy. And I'm thinking, okay, is Ingi going to be on the call or what? <laughs> 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 we have the question, so we were prepared anyway. So uh, no, no. <laughs> I would never leave you in the lurch. No, I know, I know, I know you don't. You are the most professional person, along with Paul <laughs> and Chris, that I know. So we're very happy to have well, you. Well. Well, thank you for the introduction. We're really looking forward to tonight's show because, hey, um, you know, uh, Paul's my previous co-host here on The Water Zone. We all know and love him, and uh, it's good to have his voice back as a guest because, as you just said, Paul has 
moved on to a different position, and it's very exciting, and he's going to tell us about it and um, how it how it relates to the industry. So, well, let me, let me just, unless we have any other announcements. No, I just, uh, want to throw out, I just want to throw out the call-in lines in case anybody wants to talk to you guys, and, and you're experts in, definitely in your field. Uh, if you do want to talk to Paul or Inky, please do so. Call 888-909-1050. Or if you're in the mood for a local call, you can do 909-792-5222. And... Uh, I know Chris or anybody, he gives good phone. <laughs> so we can answer the questions. We yep, keep, absolutely. We, we keep it clean. So, Inge, it's all yours. All right. Well, we got um, Paul here sitting next to me. Hi, Paul, thanks for coming over and uh, doing the show here live with me. You're welcome. My pleasure, truly. So for the listening audience, I mean, they know you as the co-host, and we have had a lot of conversation on this show over the last couple of years, but... I don't think that you've been on as a guest before, so let me let the uh, audience know a little more about you. Uh, your your new title is Director of Inventory for RDO Water, and that is a major uh, dealership, irrigation, aggregation dealership here in the West, and Paul will tell us more about that. Um, but just a little bit more about Paul's background. He's involved with agricultural production and sales, and both on the local, regional, and the global level, with a background in ag and commercial lending and finance earlier in his career, a self-employed agribusiness owner, and then more lately, um, sales and marketing management. He's currently the director of purchasing for RDO Water, which is a dealer distributor of irrigation solutions for agriculture. He was previously senior sales manager and national accounts for the Toro Company, and prior to that with John Deere Water as the director of sales for the United States and Canada. He's a Cal Poly guy, and I won't hold him against. I won't, I won't hold that against him because I'm a Davis gal. Uh, but yeah, he's got ag business management from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and he's been really engaged in the industry. He's past president, chairman of the legislative committee, and current board of directors member of the California Ag Irrigation Association. Past chairman of the International Irrigation Association's Drip and Micro Irrigation Common Interest Group, um, the membership committee and the Government Affairs Committee, and he's also an ad hoc member of the Western Growers Water Committee. And, as we know, he was also a co-host of the Water Zone before he moved on. And most importantly, but not um, last but not least, um, he's married to Barbara and has three grown children, Michael, Megan, and Heather, and they reside in Escondido and enjoy outdoor activities like fly fishing, hiking, gardening, and hiking in Scotland for like 18 miles a day, which is, uh, you might, might as well just tell us one snippet about that. I mean, uh, he's just coming off of a hiking trip in Scotland. So uh, my wife and I, my youngest daughter and her husband, completed a five-night, four-day hiking expedition through the highlands of Scotland. Uh, we uh, clocked over 50 miles during that four-day period. The longest day was about 17 and a half miles. It was one of the most exciting, also one of the most uh, physically challenging things I've done in in decades. It was uh, uh, outside of running a half marathon. I think it was probably uh, right up there. So <laughs> it was it was it was beautiful. The people were lovely. We saw a lot of agriculture there, which was uh, interesting as well. Can you call? Well, I, can after you, seven, oh, after I was, seventeen miles, you would think that he'd have a a nice glass of wine in that little Scottish <laughs> hut, right? Exactly. And what I really wanted a picture of was uh, was Paul in a uh, kilt, and I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> you may be waiting a while. <laughs> <laughs> what was that, Rob? No, I just wanted to clarify. You said you did the, the half marathon, marathon. That means you gave up the rest of the half, or how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah, I did a whole one, and I wish I would have just done a half. <laughs> anyway, so Paul, tell us a little bit about your background and how your career evolved into ag irrigation. It's um, it's rather uh, uh, mysterious, actually. It, I grew up around agriculture. My dad was in the farming business. My grandparents uh, farmed oranges in, uh, in and around uh, Orange County. Uh, uh, so I've been kind of very deeply uh, engaged with agriculture uh, uh, growing up, uh, 4-H, FFA, um, and went, going to Cal Poly, it wasn't clear to me where, where I wanted to end up. Uh, with a business degree, I felt that I could kind of go a number of different paths and uh, uh, got into ag lending and, and it was an excellent experience learning uh, the ins and outs of uh, financial analysis and tax returns and all that fun stuff, appraisals. Lending, that's that's giving people money, Giving right? people money. Yeah, I, I would like that job. That would be fun. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. <laughs> and then uh, on uh, off into uh, into the irrigation side, um, ended up getting my first uh, job with an irrigation manufacturer by literally slipping my resume under the front door after hours at uh, Robert's Irrigation, a, a company that I went on to work for for 12 years. Uh, it later became part of John Deere Water. So, And then uh, uh, recently with Toro and then uh, uh, with, with RDO as the director of uh, purchasing for their uh, eight locations in the U.S. and three, uh, three in, in Mexico. Well, tell us about this new... Um uh, position and how and how what I what I seem to understand is how your background with irrigation manufacturers such as Toro has really uniquely prepared you for that for this new role. Sure. So I think uh, one of the things that the RDO with a to give a little background is a wonderful family-owned company started out uh, as a, a Mr. Offit uh, started growing potatoes in South Dakota or North Dakota, excuse me, and uh, at 28 years old, bought, uh, borrowed the money to buy his first uh, John Deere dealership. Uh, currently, uh, uh, the Offit family is the largest uh, uh, potato-producing uh, family in the country. Uh, in addition, they are the largest John Deere equipment dealership uh, in, in, the, uh, in the world, I believe, uh, with offices in, in the Ukraine and Russia, throughout western United States and even uh, down into Mexico and Australia. So, uh, and growing as much as they have, not only in the farm equipment side, but also in the in the uh, deer construction and forestry uh, side, uh, John Deere said, we're going to uh, uh, suggest that you grow outside the equipment business. And when uh, John Deere suggests something like that, you listen intently <laughs> and uh, so they ended up buying uh, an irrigation uh, distributorship uh, based in in Escondido my uh, my hometown and uh, which had uh, offices uh, from uh, Palm Springs over to Yuma and then they acquired other uh, locations uh, up the coast uh, clear uh, clear to Salinas just south of uh, San Jose so today we have eight uh, eight uh, um, uh, locations in California and Arizona and three uh, in Mexico. We just opened a, an office in central Mexico 
uh, just recently. So, uh, again, kind of the family uh, business that's grown, it's privately held, uh, very uh, uh, professional organization. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't, uh, can't say enough good things about the group and the people that run it. They're just uh, outstanding. Well, they're lucky to have you, and I'm sure that uh, your input will help them become an even better supplier of solutions to farmers that help us grow our food. You know, bottom line, uh, we need good companies out there to help us uh, meet the world's growing food needs. So the, I think that was really the uh, the impetus uh, for, for the acquisition was uh, the um, – the offits uh, came obviously from a farming background, and they were uh, they're very invested in the in farming. Obviously, they they grow eighty thousand acres of potatoes and manage another two hundred thousand acres of farm ground. So irrigation is an integral part of that, and they 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 completely and thoroughly understand the need for efficient water use, because a lot of obviously what they do on the equipment side is contingent on the uh, on the use of uh, proper irrigation techniques to grow uh, higher quality and more quantity of, uh, of food to feed the, not only this country, but uh, countries around the world. Yeah, well, that's interesting. They're really vertically integrated. Then. I mean, it's a big farm, huge farm, that has basically become um, integrated in the, you know, the equipment solutions side of the business as, as well. If you've ever eaten a McDonald's french fry, the <laughs> likelihood of eating a an Offutt family-grown potato is uh, is very, very high. Oh, well, speaking of food, well, we know that every Californian eats. What all, all the we know that the food that every Californian eats is dependent on agriculture, but it's also um, a very complicated industry. Um, is the best I can describe it. Tell tell us how the ag irrigation business environment including the manufacturers and dealers and growers that we were just speaking about, are changing to make food production more efficient and sustainable for the average citizen. Sure. So I think uh, you have to step back and you look at California as a state uh, and um, the amount of water resources that we have outside of a couple of uh, small reservoirs that were, were built in our area in Southern California. Very few, have, if uh, any at all, have been built since 1979 when the population of the state was 14, 15 million people. So now we're approaching 40 million people without any additional surface storage. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned earlier, Rob, the conveyance, moving that water uh, from Northern California down to Southern California where, where the, the three-quarters of the need is for that water, uh, it's a very complicated situation. And you take into account the groundwater situation and the overdrafting or overpumping of groundwater and all of the, the issues uh, that uh, that's causing, uh, including uh, subsidence, where the, if the, the groundwater, is, uh, the ground, the soil is like a sponge, and if you end up pumping too much, that deflates the sponge and in one instance, I know a, a major canal in the, in the Friant Kern system uh, has decreased its capacity by 30% because of the subsidence in the South San Joaquin Valley. 
you can't pump any more water through it because it's going uphill. So it limits the capacity to move water around the state of California, which is is critically important, as as, as you both know, as our listeners know. So uh, having said all that, growing food in California is becoming tougher and tougher with the uh, restrictions. Uh, number one, labor. Uh, labor is an issue. Uh, the reduced uh, uh, labor force uh, and then the regulatory situation is, is becoming uh, more and more difficult. And then, of course, water, I, I would consider number three. So all those things uh, uh, affect the 250 to 260 crops currently grown in California. And the, the, the folks that are the families that farm that uh, those crops for, for our benefit, not only our benefit, but for the benefit of uh, those uh, around uh, the United States. Yeah, big, big challenge to make all those pieces work. Now, I have to say that my, my initial question was, you know, it, it was an assumption that every Californian eats what, um, you know, basically what the farmers grow. Well, I was just down at a trade show in Australia called Ozveg where they were 3D printing food. Oh, <laughs> And I was thinking, oh, my gosh. The day of Star Trek and the Replicator may be here, at which time maybe we won't be growing food <laughs> in the future. But for now, at least, the farmers are still growing the ingredients that go into the test tube that feed the 3D printer, <laughs> thankfully. I would prefer to go out to my uh, garden in my backyard and pick a vine-ripe tomato uh, personally rather than go to my Xerox printer. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, who knows what the future may bring. True. Uh, that was a very interesting show. A lot of future... Um, future is talking about what's happening here in the future. Um, I know that you're passionate about food waste as well, and tell us a little bit about that. How much goes to waste? Why does it go to waste? What's happening to reduce the amount of food that goes to waste? What, what can we do about that? So if we, if we, it's a great question. I think if we go back and we look at uh, farmers uh, in the United States, or specifically in California, being some of the most efficient uh, farmers in the world in terms of, you know, when you, if you go back and you say in the 1950s, the percentage of the population that worked on the farm post-World War II was somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 or 40 percent of the people that were affiliated with growing food and transporting food and such. Today it's two or three percent. And those two or three percent of Americans that are involved in farming produce much more food than their predecessors post-World War II just to feed the population, not only of the United States, but all the grains that we export and so forth and, and cotton and soybeans and those kinds of things. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a remarkable. Uh, but having said that, there is a, a, one of the factors, the labor issue in, in, uh, around the country the lack of labor to harvest the crops is becoming a greater and greater issue. Uh, we were talking earlier, Inge uh, and I, about one of the largest uh, uh, food uh, processing and growing operations in the world where uh, every American eats a bag of uh, lettuce that this company produces at least uh, uh, once every three or four days. Their average age of their workforce in the factory and in the field is 46 and 47 years of age. So to continue to do what they have to do, 
uh, they have to automate or find uh, folks that are willing to, to work in, in that to produce that bag of lettuce that we all enjoy. I think the other critical factor for me is just, uh, is just waste. I think uh, we in, the, in California, certainly in the U.S., we're, as a percentage of our budget, our, our financial budget, personal budget, food costs are some of the lowest in the world. And we've uh, we've gotten quite spoiled, in my opinion, yeah. by by not only the quality of the food, but just the way that it looks. And if it's there's one little scratch or one little blemish, or the banana's a little brown on the skin, it gets tossed aside or not harvested. Today, 30 to 40 percent of all food grown in the United States is not harvested or is discarded post-harvest because it doesn't look right. That's atrocious to me. That is, Be- that is because if, if 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 we would just accept a small blemish on a on a on an on an orange or a tomato or a banana, uh, think what that would do for world hunger. There, there. I remember, you know, my my mother always telling me, "Be sure and clean your plate because there's somebody <laughs> else and and wherever that uh, would give their uh, you know right arm for that food and." We, uh, as Americans, and not just Americans, but it's around the world, in, in, the, in Europe and other places, if it doesn't look right, we throw it away. The, uh, the other thing I think that it's uh, important to recognize, approximately 18% of all the food that we do buy at the supermarket, take home and prepare or just put in our refrigerator, uh, goes bad, or the leftovers go bad, and those end up getting thrown away. Nearly 20%, one-fifth of all the food that we buy, we throw out because it just uh, it, it uh, deteriorates or it goes unused and uh, begins to deteriorate. So I think keep in mind, my message, I guess, would be keep in mind those two things, that just because something has a little blemish on it doesn't affect the quality whatsoever. Uh, don't uh, don't uh, just discard that uh, uh, offhand and... Uh, the other thing is, if, if be more uh, uh, aware of the food that you buy and prepare and, and utilize those things, because those two things alone could literally solve the world hunger problem if uh, if if they we were able to make it uh, make it work correctly. Hey, Paul, I have a question for you, if I can. Um, sure. For example, yogurt. I happen to go in and grab a grab a thing of yogurt to take to work, and I noticed it was past the date that it says on there. And I think, I don't know how clear that is to consumers, what that really means. Does it mean you don't eat it from the date it says you shouldn't, or it doesn't say you shouldn't. It says, you know, this is this is for best. Do you, how, how do the consumers know what what that is? You know, can, can, it, can it go a couple more days from that, or is that really expired, or do you eat it and get sick? And my wife says, well, what do you think yogurt's made from, and blah, 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 you know, it's, Right. You know, so so how does a consumer know? How do the, how do the manufacturers tell people that yeah, this is this is this is when we think it tastes, you know, this is at the last of its best tasting, but you can still good to eat it. I mean, I think there's confusion in in the marketplace about what that date really means. I would completely agree. And on one hand, the food producers want to protect themselves uh, legally. And so they're being extra conservative on the expiration date. Uh, and then depending on the food group that you're talking about, it may go days, weeks, even years past those 
states and still be perfectly fine to consume. I think there needs to be more effort in that very area, Rob, to clarify that so that consumers are more comfortable with the suggested date. So, um, and, and but I again, I would I would say it all depends on the food group. Uh, yogurt, I think, uh, probably would never go bad. You know, like uh, uh, you know, it's it's cultured. I'm being facetious. It's, uh, My wife is still alive, so I guess that's a true statement <laughs> for that. I know, I, I, I know years ago I was involved in a process called modified atmosphere packaging. And it's like when you buy potato chips or even in the stores where they would keep the meat more red by pa- putting it into an environment that, that had more nitrogen and things like that because otherwise you start getting uh, – the brownish colors in the meat, and same thing with the deli foods with the cheese and things. And even in potato chips, they don't just put them in a bag and seal them. They put some some inert gas inside of it to keep it longer. And and I think a lot of the consumers don't know that's happening. Not that it's a bad thing; it's a good thing. But but there's a lot of things they don't they don't understand about it. Just like organic, people want to know why why does organic you know one what does organic mean and two why does it cost a lot? And you guys about a year ago did a show with with a grower and had a nice explanation of why why it costs more because you don't use the pesticides and you get smaller um a crop you know uh a crop uh, uh Yield. yields out of that i mean there's so much that people don't know and they just pick up on little sound bites and then they go with that and it's all misinformation all, all about education you need to know more about these things that are so important such as water and Food. I think, as Paul said, we've been spoiled. We have taken them for granted. We're lucky as heck as Americans to spend so little of our our budget on food. Other parts of the world spend 60% of their budget on food, and they don't have very much variety or availability. So we're very lucky. We shouldn't take it for granted. No. Yeah. I know, I know my grandkids, when, we t- when they were little, and you take them to the restaurants and they order their food, and my wife says, don't order for me. She says, don't order a big meal. I go, why? She says, because you're going to finish up, but the kids don't eat. And, and, and you see that in the restaurants. You know, the kids will order a meal, or the parents order a meal, and the kids eat, you know, 20%, 30%, maybe 50%, and the rest is thrown away. I think That's as a, terrible. Yeah, I think as a society, though, we're, we're really conditioned to expect everything to be perfect, right? Even in our food and, and the food industry that promotes and markets this food tells you that. I mean, you must read the label. You've got to do this. Uh, everybody now is involved with the whole farm-to-table issue, right? I want it fresh. Um, you know, so we're, we're sort of got this mindset that it has to be perfect, right? So to some, for some people, it's tough to accept something that is a little bit subpar. Yeah, it might actually be healthier if it has a blemish. Yeah, absolutely. It means it didn't yeah. use a pesticide. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I like to cook stuff, right? So, uh, yeah. And I will ripen bananas to a degree where, you know, you wouldn't want to put it on the table and eat it, but it works perfect in a... In a uh, uh, and a smoothie. Yeah. <laughs> per- perfect for the smoothies. All right. So we got to take a couple of minutes. No, no, we got time. We oh, got time. Sorry? No, we're, we're good. Keep going. <laughs> okay. So uh, I'd just like to talk to, to Chris and mention or reply to Chris's comment about the, the food companies are pushing uh, the, for, for, the, for the perfect food. I haven't found that to be necessarily true. I think the consumers are the ones that are driving it more than the food companies. Uh, for example, uh, I look at baby carrots. You know, the baby carrots uh, were something that 
uh, was developed to fill a niche uh, by consumers, and they took all the um, carrots that had been coals or cracked or split or broken, and they formed them into those baby carrots where they normally would have been thrown away, but they just changed the appearance. And now uh, we eat baby those quote-unquote baby carrots probably in, in a greater percentage than we do uh, uh, standard carrot. So I think it's it's more a consumer in a, uh, viewing uh, this product as acceptable or unacceptable than the, the food companies actually dictating that it has to be perfect, in, in my opinion. Well, A, you've burst my bubble on, uh, on baby carrots, uh, Paul. <laughs> do they do the same with the baby? Do you actually think they were little baby carrots that were grown in that size? Sure, I thought, you know, by the millions, they, you know, and just harvest them right out of there. Well, does that apply to the baby corns? Baby corns. They grind them down and make them look pretty. Right. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, let's, um, let's hear from Paul a little bit more about his national perspective on California and the West, and he and I have talked about this at length on our own over the last over the years, so I'd like to, the audience to hear a little bit about this. So, Paul, your perspective on California and the West, how does it differ from the rest of the country, and what's the significance of that difference? Well, that's a, we could take a whole hour. Oh, is that a, is that a biggie? Like, <laughs> like, yeah, when we started delving into organic, it was like, uh-oh, that's another show. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about organic. Well, I think California is a very interesting uh, state, uh, very obviously very diverse, uh, 250, 260 different crops, where versus uh, Nebraska, I think there are one, and number two is a distant second. It's corn, corn, and corn. So um, we have a huge variety, and there are probably within the state uh, six to eight separate uh, um, regional areas that have very different views on water and water use. I'll, I'll just use, for example, uh, uh, Southern California and, and then uh, in, in Riverside, for example, with, uh, with uh, all the oranges and so forth. Uh, and then you go out to the Coachella, Indio, Brawley, and that uh, water use situation completely different, different sources, typically different uses, a different water rate. And then you go into Orange County and some of the, uh, the farming that still uh, is, is continuing down there with a former guest and uh, Secretary of Agriculture for the state, uh, A.G. Kalmura, uh, you know, growing under power lines. And, and then you go on up to uh, Ventura and Oxnard and, and how diverse it is up there with uh, with uh, uh, water use and, and the, the salinity levels. So. It's a lot different than corn, 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 it's, which is what you see in the Midwest. It's much different. We don't even have to leave Southern California to, to get a pretty vivid illustration of that. So I don't think the Easterners have any concept of how diverse it is. I, I don't think so. And in, in folks that I've had the, the honor to, to lead in tours and so forth of, the, of California agriculture, are astonished. Uh, you know, big farmers from Georgia and Florida come to the San Joaquin Valley, and their jaw drops as we head down the grapevine, literally, uh, and looking at the size and the scope of of that uh, farmland before them. It, it, it's just astonishing. But having said that, you know, our water issues 
uh, kind of uh, mirror those six or eight geographic regions throughout the state. They each have different uh, uh, needs, wants, and desires for those, that water. And uh, it's a very complex issue. Water rights in the state are different, oh, really uh, different. Yeah. than other states. So uh, groundwater is, 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 uh, is uh, challenging. You know, Mark Twain's uh, famous quote, uh, you know, whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting. Uh, couldn't be more true and hasn't been more true than it has been in the last decade in California. So lots of, uh, lots of uh, different interests for water and farming throughout the state of California. But also on top of all of that, it's one of the most fertile areas in, in the country, in the world, for growing food and most productive. But so we have that unique Mediterranean climate. It's true. It's unique. There's only three or four places in the world that will grow what we grow. If we grow, uh, you know, 99% of all the almonds in the world, right, uh, right in California, uh, that's, uh, that's a million acres of almonds. That's uh, that's uh, considerable. So, lots of lots of diversity. Where the future is going to go? I think a lot of it's going to be driven by uh, regulatory. Uh, first, the labor, then regulatory, and then water issues. Are we going to have the water to continue to farm, uh, and are we going to have a uh, labor or the technology? To, and the labor to operate that technology uh, at the farm level to eliminate the aging population in the farm on the, in the farm community in general. Well, you've held uh, leadership roles in many different organizations. Maybe you can tell us about what they're doing about these challenges, such as the California Ag Irrigation Association, the Western Ag and Conservation Coalition, which is really a cool, unique uh, um, group of people, and then the IA, the Irrigation Association. What are what are they doing to help us solve some of our challenges between rural and urban populations? So let's uh, let's first talk about the California Ag Irrigation Association. That's a group of um, irrigation manufacturers and dealers, academics, and and consultants that do business in the state of California. There's roughly 80 members. Uh, Company, 80 member companies that are involved up and down the state of California. And our mission is to uh, pr uh, promote um, efficient water use uh, in the ag community. So uh, we offer uh, classes as, as an organization. We have uh, meetings uh, twice a year, once at the Tulare Farm Show and once uh, it, it moves around the state uh, where we bring in uh, uh, speakers that address the legislative issues, um, and this year, obviously, the Farm Bill is a huge topic because that's uh, up for vote. So we'll be uh, talking about the Farm Bill. Uh, we'll also uh, be addressing uh, state water issues, uh, like you mentioned earlier, Rob. The uh, the conveyance uh, around the around the Delta through the what is it one or two tunnels now? It's uh, it's unclear what the what's uh, on the table and how much is it's being funded. But so we talk about things like that and, and just to, it, it's an educational uh, group uh, helping uh, distribute information on legislative issues and uh, things that uh, technologies that may, may help. Um, the, the Western Ag and Conservation Coalition is a group that I've been involved with for some time, a few years anyway, four or five years, and I'll just read you the list of uh, names. There's the Family Farm Alliance, Public Science Council, Montana Stockman's, the Nature Conservancy, 
the Autobahn Society, the Irrigation Association, Trout Unlimited, uh, KCO, which is an, uh, an engineering firm, the Environmental Defense Fund, uh, Wyoming Stock Growers, Western Growers, uh, Montana Cattlemen, the California Farm Bureau, and the California Ag Irrigation Association. So it's a blend of uh, groups like the Nature Conservancy, Environmental uh, Defense Fund, Trout Unlimited, environmental groups that got together with groups like Western Growers, California Ag, Irrigation, Farm Bureau, and said, okay, we, have, we know we have differences, but let's work together, find common ground where we can go to Washington, D.C. and lobby on behalf of intelligent uh, uh, legislation to solve the problem of uh, uh, being good stewards of our streams and rivers and the wildlife that uh, is uh, uh, con- uh, uh, tied to those streams and rivers and lakes, but also provide uh, water for farms and do it in an intelligent and, and long-term viewing manner. And it's been extremely interesting to work with this group. What a diverse group, but uh, I'm proud to be a part of it. Uh, there's some uh, some very, very sharp people uh, that we don't always agree, but at least we come to the come to the table and and uh, leave our uh, big sticks outside, and uh, we sit down and we talk, and it, many of us have become good friends. And I think we've had a pretty dramatic effect on on uh, water and water-related issues uh, in the United States. The uh, the last group is the Irrigation Association, and we've had uh, folks from the, that group uh, on on the radio program in the past. But they're a national organization. And, and uh, similar to the California Ag Irrigation Association, fo- focused on education, raising the awareness. Uh, they have a lobbying effort uh, to uh, promote uh, efficient water use, both on the uh, uh, turf and golf side, but also on the agricultural side across the country. And they've taken that message and, and uh, uh, help, uh, help it spread into Europe and to Australia and other parts of the world all about uh, being good stewards of our of our resources that we've been so blessed to have. So um, all those uh, groups uh, working together, uh, the intention is to 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 have uh, have farmland and have food, fresh food uh, and and water uh, for our children and our children's children for, for generations to come so they can enjoy a fresh tomato from uh, from their garden rather than a uh, a 3D printer, perhaps, or something. So, anyway. <laughs> and a healthy environment. And to, a healthy environment. To enjoy it in. That's what I love about the Western Ag and Conservation Coalition is that where do you see that diversity of groups working together? And we need to do more of that. And we need to find the common ground. And that's exactly what that group is doing. You know, finding that common ground and working together, even though, as you said, they might have some differences. Hey, welcome back to the uh, Water Zone. And, uh, we're going to play a little thing that we did with uh, NBC News uh, weathercaster Fritz Coleman, and uh, what a great guy he is, so let's uh, bring him on. We're just neophytes. We don't do what he does, and I wish I could be like him and speak like him and do all of that, so we appreciate that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I don't know what to say. That's very nice. <laughs> but as I was telling you, I like what you do because this is an avocation for you, a passion, 
And I think the best work is born out of passion. You see that a lot with people here, people who are uh, of the, an environmental bent and uh, people that see, look to the future and see that water could be a huge issue if we don't get our hands around the infrastructure and the conservation and everything. Right? Absolutely. Well, we could see that this was, uh, was uh, something that's an avocation for you as well, right? We could see your interest during the presentations here and your, your uh, verve for all of the things that are water-related that you that all the moderators Well, this makes me a better weathercaster. Uh, what's interesting is it makes three-dimensional what I do at work. Oh. I talk about it. We, I, 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 with great hope, say we're going to get something to fall out of the sky. But what I don't talk about is what happens to the water when it hits the ground. That's what this is about. It's the distribution of it. But what I'm so stricken by, this is my second year, is the complexity of this issue because of our population in California, because of our odd geology, because of the, the overarching drought that we have. There are so many complicated questions that have to be answered in order to get a sufficient amount of water to everybody so they have a quality of life. I think one of the most interesting concepts today that came out in one of the first discussions was the fact that water goes um, first in line, first right. I don't know if that's exactly the way they describe it. That's so fascinating to me. You know, because in the Northwest you have tribal laws and some of these uh, Native American reservations that have uh, have rights to this water going back into the 1700s and stuff, and they 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 have the rights to water because they were there first, and that complicates everything. Regardless of what the need is downstream, they still right. have the rights. Right. It's, 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 it's first use, first right. Yeah, right. <clears throat> right. So I mean, uh, you look at the state of Colorado, for example. Every drop that falls out of the sky belongs to the state of Colorado. Right, and as was uh, recognized by our wonderful. Yep. guest keynote speaker that's going to become a real issue because we in the southern third of the state borrow a lot of water from the Colorado River they're in the midst of the worst 17 year dry period in the history of since they've been keeping records and are forecasted to have even more intense drought between now and like 2050 wow we're going to have a problem I mean I don't know what the percentage of water is that we get out of the Colorado River uh, connected with the aqueduct and everything else to the north, but it's huge yeah. for the southern part of the state, so it's something we're going to have to address. Yeah, and uh, as, as uh, many of the speakers said, there's uh, no additional water supply available, right? The earth is a closed, it's a fixed system. It's right? a closed the water, loop. The water exactly. that's here is the same water that was here three billion years ago and will be the same water that will be here three billion from now, right? There's not a pipe coming in from outer space delivering more. We're so. just recycling it over yeah. and over and over. Yeah, <clears throat> so, so there were two things that are going to, you know, last year what stuck with me was the discussion of the Oroville Dam. Mm. And it was fascinating because they had the man mm. from the Army Corps of Engineers here descri describing what a complicated fix that was. And if it weren't fixed, it could have been a catastrophe that we couldn't even calculate. But this year, uh, the, the, the two things that really stuck with me are, as I say, the first right issue. Yeah. And also the fact that conservation has 
unintended consequences. The fact that if we don't keep the water moving through these collection systems, that bacteria and viruses and bad things grow in the delivery system, so we have to move it through the system. So we're conserving it, but we actually have to allow the system to cycle through, otherwise it's a health threat. Who, who would have thought of that? You know, we congratulate ourselves on conserving water, but that was a really interesting point that I hadn't even considered. You know, one of the things that interests me in the, the first gentleman uh, you introduced, uh, Robert Hartman, <coughs> the hydrologist, when he said, well, it doesn't really pay to go build new dams or because of that and, and there's no space and then the future. And, but we need to plan for the future. We can't wait till all of a sudden we have a crisis and then, no. and then react. We, we're not proactive enough in the state. No, I think that's what was uh, hopeful about what Brenda Berman said, mm -hmm. that these are things that her staff is trying to address now looking at these forecast models and seeing where we're going to be as to drought and a population and those kinds of things. So you're, you're absolutely right. Interesting time. Yeah. I think the technology has changed. And, and, and since you've been doing, you know, your weather for, for many years, how, how has it helped you with all this new modeling and all the new technology that's out there? And I mean, because I'm sure you have a staff of meteorologists who feed you all this information. Well, no, when we're on the air, we're all responsible for our own story, as we call it. We're like all news reporters. Our job is to tell a story. I like your drizzled reporter. Yeah, <laughs> there's that. That was hysterical. <laughs> uh, as uh, what we do is exactly what any television reporter does. You come into work today, and you decide what your story is going to be. So if I were working today, and I'm not, thank goodness, uh, I would say the big story is the early overcast, the earlier clearing, and we're going to start getting warmer today. So when I decide what my story is, then I have to go in and find the data from the National Weather Service, both Oxnard and San Diego, to help me tell that story. So uh, I, as I say, I don't get into hydrology, although we use the hydrological measurements to be able to report to yeah. people how much rain has yes, fallen right. and you know how close to being over their banks rivers are and all that kind of thing. But we don't get into it. That's why this has been so educational. And I think it will help me in, uh, in just sort of understanding how to react to flash flooding and and just how to, how to put a spin on it when it's time for me to talk about rainfall or lack of it. And not, I don't do this that much because I've been around too long, but a lot of weather people are very cavalier. And, oh, it's going to rain tomorrow, but don't worry, the sun will be back out on Saturday. Well, you don't understand. We're, we need water. Are you crazy? Why are you reacting that way? This just helps me to be more sensitive about how much water we get, how much water we don't get sometimes, and, you know. It'll make, it'll, it'll make me better at my job. Do you see more of the your audience and, and the people around, that you see outside and everything, do you think they're, they're getting to be more sensitive about water in California? Or I it's think, just a story? You know, it's like catastrophe is the mother of invention or whatever they need. Uh, this last drought, uh, because there were city and county mandates for yeah. conservation, then people have to own up or they're going to pay the fine. Yeah. I think during those crises, we tend to get more sensitive to it. But what we need to do is to get into a mindset where we're always conscious of it so that it translates into our behavior in our homes and elsewhere. So we're not just cutting back because some elected official said we have to cut back this month. 
I think we're beginning to see that now with the younger people so. especially, yeah. right? Oh, because yeah, the millennials are in the oh conservation God, they, mindset they just, already. They, 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 they astound me at their awareness yeah. of stuff. Yeah. So they'll be the ones that will save us from ourselves, I hope. I do too. What, what do you see the view or the, or the purpose or mission of the media to help educate the public on water issues? I, I know they do news stories or anything else, but I mean particularly on water. What I think it's incumbent upon the media to, especially in states like California, where this is a real sensitivity for us because we're the desert southwest, I think it's incumbent on us to do it. We have a couple of things pressing in on our ability to enlighten people, not only about this, but about anything that's important. And that is the short American attention span. <laughs> and the fact that people have the control over their televisions with a clicker, that has shortened the amount of time we spend on any given story. It, it, it makes the most compelling and uh, often violent videos, what we present to people because people don't tune out when they're jarred, you know? And often when you get into the weeds with uh, discussions like the science of water and hydrology, it's a little dry, forgive the expression. Uh, and so these are things that don't make their way onto local television. And I'm not apologizing for it, I think it's un unfortunate. I have a boss where I work now who sees the importance of this. We did a half hour special on El Nino. We did a half hour special on the drought. He puts resources and manpower onto these issues, but that's our boss, it's very subjective. But I think it's the media's responsibility. I was talking during one of my introductions in here today, after we watched those testimonials that people gave about how clueless they are, about what happens when you turn the faucet on, where it comes from and who pays for it, yeah. we're not doing our job. I mean, maybe people would be uh, even more sensitive and more willing to participate in conservation if they knew um, where water comes from, how it's paid for, uh, how the infrastructure works, where we borrow from. You know, a lot of people in Southern California, and I get into this all the time because we do stories on the snowpack, which is most important. Nobody, not nobody, that's, that's wrong, that's a blanket statement, but many people don't understand how much water we borrow from the northern and central Sierra, the snowpack, the, the, the delta region up there, the Colorado River, we're down here humbly begging people to please send water, because that we, we get it from other people. Right. They have no idea um, how precarious that is. You know, so we should educate. You're, it's a very too long of an answer to your question. I think the media should be more forthcoming. It's like hearing the last comments from uh, Mr. Kapal and, and uh, Paul Jones versus the uh, the uh, state senator. Um, it almost seems to me that they always rush. They being the government. In California, they passed over, I believe, 800 and something laws last year. I don't know how. Uh, we got to cut that a little short. Uh, we'll bring that back next time uh, to finish it up. Uh, we're getting close to the news hour, which we can't miss. Otherwise, we get crucified by NBC. We have to do it right. <laughs> so to be good stewards of the radio air, we're going to turn it back over to NBC News and let them do their feature story. Maybe they'll have one on us someday. Who knows? Anyway, that was great. Fritz is a great guy. and We appreciate he spent the time with us to, to do that.